Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're here in Ephesians chapter 5, and this has been our home for the better part of this summer on Sunday mornings that we have addressed these passages. Last week, we really moved down to the 20s, 22, 23, into that area. And this morning, we're going to really take our text from verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And this morning, I really want to talk about love. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll theme right off of this and talk more about the role of the husband. But this morning, I think it's imperative for you and I to focus on this particular word in verse 25, love. That's the indicative here. That's the imperative. Husbands, love your wives. Now, if you could just imagine with me for a moment, I want to ask you a question. Can you imagine investing your time and resources into a lifelong commitment with only a possibility of about a 40 or 50, perhaps a 60% chance of success? Imagine it this way. Can you imagine going out tomorrow, brand new car, going to get a brand new car, and uh, you're going to get that new, new car smell, and, and uh, they're going to give you new floor mats, and you're going to get whatever your favorite brand is. You're going to get a GM or a Ford or a Toyota or a Honda. You pick it out. And you're going to get that car. Maybe it's a Lamborghini. Maybe it's a custom wood car for whatever you do with that. You just got to get a check for termites regularly. But you're going to get all this done. Can you imagine that you sunk tens of thousands of dollars in that vehicle? Got all the bells and whistles that your heart could desire. And with less than five years, it failed on you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your willingness to go and invest your time, hopes, dreams, aspirations in purchasing this car, knowing before you purchased it, it likely wasn't going to last you five years? Now, if that was all new, new cars, would you be inclined to buy new cars? Probably not. Yeah, the reality is... That's why you have so much today as it relates questioning what we would consider as the traditional means of marriage. That's why there's a generation today that really could care less about marriage. No more than you'd really care about buying a car if you knew going into it it was going to cost tens of thousands of dollars and then it was only going to last you far less than you had hoped it would last. No wonder there would be such cynicism that one would have towards marriage. Yet that does seem to be the statistics. In fact, when you look at the recent uh, polls regarding divorce rates, you'll note that it hovers somewhere around that 45% mark in an overarching thought process. About 45%, approximately 50% of marriages in a general theme ended where they thought they would never be. Now, I know that there's always some goofball that gets married and doesn't really care how it works out. But generally speaking, I've met very few of them in life. I've met many a young couple, enamored with, and many an older couple too, enamored with each other, delighted by one another's presence, like each other, profess their love one to another, and excited about marriage and the hope of what it would mean 
to their lives. That's usually the way people move into a marriage in our society. Yet the reality is there's a high number of marriages that do not end up as one would have hoped. It's interesting in the study that was taken in 2014. They said nominal Christians, that's people that name the name of Christ, but nominal, you might see them on C&E. Christmas and Easter. That's what nominal means. There's no real mention, there's no impact that Christianity really makes in their life. They're at best casual attenders of a church that believes something. That nominal Christians, this surprised me, nominal Christians have a higher divorce rate than many times people that don't go to church at all. It can be upwards to 20% higher. Well, our heart would think, well, why would that be? I think because they have a knowledge of certain things. Therefore, the expectation is much higher. They have an understanding of certain things the Bible says about marriage and the roles complementing each other within the boundaries of marriage. And yet, because there's no due diligence to the things of God, the reality that is often realized is that all of the foundations come falling down. Now, you could think in a secular type marriage, well, there was really no practice of the things of God. They might be slightly more cautious in certain areas. In fact, that same um, resource that I was looking at said that individuals, they consider themselves Christians, this is very interesting, and that were immersed themselves in church and practice, often had marriage success rates that were 25% lower than the average rates. Meaning what it said is if you really, just, just, just from the statistics, one way to preserve your marriage, go to church regularly. That's what the article is saying. Just the presence of being active in in the belief system and they're not dividing everything up, just being present in the belief system enough to go to church and participate in ministry, that that alone preserved more marriages than any other singular thing that could possibly be had. Yet there are a number of people in marriages who would never consider the fact of ending it or divorce, but a number of marriages that failed to reach the full potential that God has designed. After all, God designed and implemented his marriage. It was his idea. And he created the individuals that were going to get married. Today, many Christian marriages, if we're bluntly truthful, have become somewhat disappointing to their spouses. It's like they're riding around in a high-performance vehicle and have no idea what they're doing. The road, with its ups and downs and twists and turns, has more impact on the direction of their relationship than the passengers of said car does. I think that's a hard but real fact. That there are many marriages, people have been married 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. I've even met folks 50 years of marriage. And the determination of whether or not they're satisfied with their marriage is really whatever happens to be going on that day. If they're going 
on the right road, things seem to be going well. If it's on a bad road, things seem to be going bad. And, and in a moment, in a week, in a few days, the course and pitch and the structure upon the road that they travel can reverberate and cause what was going to be a good day into a bad day or what could have been a good year into a bad year. There's no real consistency. It's estimated, in fact, that nearly 75% of all counseling in regards to Christian counseling is in the theme of marital counseling. Now, in reality, we should greatly rejoice that a couple would be working on greater productivity and success as opposed to limping along. But why is it that Christians so often have trouble in the areas of marriage? I think part of it is a misunderstanding of what the purpose of marriage is. Usually, you know, a young fella and a young lady They'll come in and they'll tell the preacher, they'll tell their parent, we want to get married. And I don't know if your mind is fashioned in this wise, but I kind of like to ask them, why? Probably because I was tormented with that question. I think it's a fair thing to torment someone else with it. But why? You'll hear a lot of things. You'll hear, they complete me. Because I really like her. Because he's such a hunk. They're really smart really attractive, really rich. Funny, you never hear anybody talk about how poor the other one is. Really rich, you know. Whatever it is. And some of them can be more noble than the others. But rarely are they able, this prospective husband and wife, to really articulate the purpose and defend from a biblical position why they should get married. I mean, there has to be definitive whys. If God's created the people and he's created marriage, there should be definitive whys. Meaning reasons why you shouldn't get married to someone and reasons why you should get married to someone. Let me give you just a few of them. When you think of marriage, yes, marriage has at its basis, in fact, companionship. In Genesis, it's good that they not man not be alone. There is a level of companionship. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a level of completeness. The helper that was meant for him. There's a level of protection. There's a level of enjoyment. Of course, at the basis of enjoyment is, of course, self-control. We could look at marriage as being a purpose of fruitfulness. Lo, children are the heritage of the Lord. There's all number of marriages and all number of purposes for those marriages. But let me give you two that are rarely ever considered even by good, godly young folks that are looking at getting married. Let me give you just two of them. Rarely are they looking at how this spouse will further their ministry for the cause of Christ. It usually does not come into their mind. Why? So often when it comes to marriage, and you can see this at a wedding, the bride becomes bridezilla, you know. There's an inward focus now, I would not derive or deprive that bride of her special day. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's a very small thing that seems so inconsequential, yet it reverberates and is a chief cause of marital disharmony between a couple. They really never stop and consider how this marriage will further the ministry of God. And yet in Ephesians, the parallel between a husband and wife is Christ and his church. 
In fact, in this passage, you'll find here he mentions the church more than he mentions the wife. And nearly mentions Jesus Christ more than he mentions the husband. There's an intentionality to it. And most often, one of the things, and you'd be a little bit surprised on this, I would be surprised for it, but we chiefly miss the responsibility of this perspective, young man and woman coming, thinking about nuptials. We scarcely consider the process of sanctification. God uses people. When we think of God using people, we always think of it in a positive light. We think of God using people and God using someone to help us do something. Or God using someone to help us provide for something. Or we think of it in that light. But the reality is, oftentimes, husbands and wives, unknowingly to each other, are God's minister in the process of sanctification. In Romans chapter 8, a great treatise on the Holy Spirit and the believer. We're often familiar with Romans 8 and 28. All things work together for the good of them that love God. But the context is not your happiness. The context is actually your suffering. Suffering is a chief means that God uses in the life of a believer to shape and to hone them into the image of his dear son. And sometimes God allows a wife and a husband in regards to marriage to sharpen one another. We have no problem with that in the context of Proverbs. As iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. It too often in the reality of my husband or my wife does not conform to how I wish them to, we're at odds. And a believer, if you've got two believers and they're walking in the Spirit of God, really what we ought to look at it is God might be using them in our life to shape us and mold us and sharpen us. And yet we resort to the baser parts of our heart. Frustration, rebellion, anger, etc., I think another reason why so many times marriage needs to be brought along in the sense of edifying one another and encouragement, not only because of misunderstanding of the purpose of marriage, but sometimes there's just no ability to handle personal conflict. The proverb says, it's better to dwell in the corner of a rooftop than in a broad house with a brawling woman. You know, looking at that, you could take the emphasis that really she's upset about something, I'm just going to run away. You know, that never fixes anything. What it does is it just covers up something. And eventually that rug, so full of the stuff that's been swept under it, is unavoidable for anyone to miss. So sometimes it's a matter of not being able to handle conflict. Sometimes it's infidelity both real and digital. Oftentimes, it's just blatant selfishness. Look, look here, you're in Ephesians 5. I haven't got to the text yet, but look at verse 29. I'll speak on this next week, maybe. In chapter 5, verse 29. For no man ever yet hateth his own. If you write in your Bible, you circle that and put my number one problem in my marriage. That's really what it is. Selfishness drives at us so often. 
He wants what he wants, she wants what she wants, and never the two shall e'er meet. Selfishness is often at the center focus. It causes disruption to the harmony of marriages. And of course, all of these challenges are on top of all that life can bring. In addition to all of a misunderstanding of the purpose, an inability to handle the conflict, infidelity, and all of that, you've got to add in all of life's challenges, you know, sickness, financial pressures, children, employment, communication differences, personality differences, cultural differences, likes, dislikes, and coupling that all together. In fact, as we said a moment ago, many marriages start out literally going the wrong direction out of the gate. Marriage is focused on them. He is so happy to have what he really wants, and she is so thrilled to have what she really wants, and somehow if we want something bad enough, our love will pay the rent. And it will be okay because I want him and he wants me and what we want, we're going to get. And the natural result of selfishness always causes problems to arise. Too often when marriages reach the point of where the self is unfulfilled, the husband and the wife begin to seek shelter from each other. And you listen closely to this. They've built a relationship on self instead of the Savior. And as long as they're both having some level of fulfillment, things are placid. But then you reach that junction in the road where there's a breach in fulfillment. A stressor, if you want to call it. Something happens where one party, or maybe both, aren't getting out of the marriage what they want. Well, that would never happen. You're right. That would never happen. There's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. And to prevent it, they say, well, we just got to stay together. And they begin to put shelters in place. They're interesting-looking shelters. Sometimes it's the shelter of travel. Sometimes it's the shelter of education. They'll both go back to school, or he'll go back to school, or she'll go here. Sometimes it's the shelter of shopping, the shelter of sports, the shelter of TV, the shelter of sin, the shelter of busyness, the shelter of finding other people. And that list goes on and on and on. When a spouse within a marriage fully exhibits the desire to embrace these shelters and selfishness as opposed to worship the God of gods, trouble is not on the horizon. Trouble is in the camp. The opposite of selfishness as revealed here in Scripture, really is love. In fact, if you wanted to look at this, when you think of love, if someone was to ask you what's the opposite of love, we would often say hate. But really, the opposite of love is self-love. John chapter 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man would do what? Lay down his life for his friends. So look here at our text Really the theme of our message this morning, it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife. Now if we would stop there, 
there would seem to be nothing to really com comment on, nothing to really exegete, nothing to really expound upon. Everyone would just say, amen, yes, husbands need to love their wives, we can close our Bibles and go home. But there is a great question that needs to be discovered, and that is this, what does it mean, love? I mean, love rivals only the word friend And there's other words I'm thinking of as well. Unprecedented comes to mind. You ever notice how everything is unprecedented today? This is a side note. I'll get back and just... Unprecedented temperatures. Unprecedented division. Unprecedented recession. Unprecedented wealth. Unprecedented threats. You ever, you ever note that? That word's used all the time. Anyway, other words that are used all the time. Love and friend. Well, we use that in social media all the time. My friends, I have 10,967 friends. You do. What are their birth dates? Facebook, I mean, social media will tell me. What if they lied? <laughs> but love is an overused word all the time. Think about it. You can turn on local show, uh, uh, an HGTV show, you know, Harm Gardens and Spending Lots of Money. You could turn that on and you'll hear, I just love this paint. You would die for the paint. I just, I just love food. Really? You love it. You, you would die for that steak. I thought the steak died for you. <laughs> I just love my pets. Love my house. We speak of patriotism in this sense. I love my country. There's some veracity in that statement. We talk of loving hobbies. I just love hunting. I just love racing. I just love the Atlanta Braves. I just I love football. I love baseball. I just love my political leaders. Well, nobody probably really says that. <laughs> But it's overused. But notice the text, husbands, love your wives. So in the connotation of today's usage, I'm to love my wife like I love my dog? I mean, to be honest, there is some truth in this statement. There are some men that will get more upset with their children over the trash they left in the car seat than they will be on how that child spake to mama. Perhaps that is true that you love your car more than you love your wife. Yes, yes, there are some men that would be so much more excited about their hobbies and how much they love hunting or how much they love woodcrafting or whatever it is that they love than they love their wife because I'm going to tell you what, that deer gets more of their affection than the dear wife does. That hobby often gets more sacrifice, more thoughtfulness. more. I know that this is not hunting season, so I'm going to take a little liberty here. There's a lot of fellas going to go hunting here in November, and they'll start thinking about it early on. And they'll start thinking about sighting in their rifle. And they'll start thinking about what they need to take with them. And they'll think in advance enough to request all from work. 
And they'll think in advance enough to go and, and, and seek out that special place where all the deer congregate to. And they'll think about that special tree and the special deer stand and how they need things for that deer stand and, and how they really just need to get the right stuff in there. And they'll think about equipment that they have to replace and they give all this consideration. But when's my wife's birthday again? When's that anniversary date? How dare she remind me of that? Maybe it is true that some love their wife just like or less than they love their husbands or uh, love, their, love their hobbies. But to really understand what this word means, because this is a command, it's important for us to know it. I think it's important to take just a few moments and talk about what it isn't. Let me give you here maybe half a dozen things of what biblical love isn't. In fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians. Keep your place, but look at 1 Corinthians. So let's look at some things that is often mistaken for love, but really isn't love at all. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now this is really the great gift that God has given to every child of God. One of the marks of every believer is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Peter commands that this be, 1 Peter chapter 4 commands, that this gift of love that is the response of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in one's life be ever-present. He calls it a fervent charity in 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul admonishes the believers to love one another. John says it's the mark of discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one to another. So let's get some descriptions of what love isn't. Note, if you will, in, John, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'll pause there a moment. I want you to note that first phrase. Though I speak with the tongues of men. You know what love is, biblical love? Biblical love is not the giving of loving expressions and pet names. Just because you call her cutie pie and she calls you honey bun is not the same thing as biblical love. One of my favorite pet name stories to tell in the 1780s, Kings Mountain, North Carolina, the Patriots crossed the Smoky Mountains and Cornwallis and company were at Kings Mountain right there on the Carolina line. And it was loaded with Tories and Whigs, Americans. There was one British subject. All the rest were American colonists. He was a colonel. And he was a foul-mouthed man. And he would swear how there was no God in heaven on man on earth that was going to move him from this mountain. We're going to entrench here. We're going to fortify. We're going to hold these southern colonies from King George. And in those days... Men didn't have 4,000 guns, you know. They just had one. But they would often give it an endearing name. Sometimes they'd name it after their wife. That's why some people have a gun. They'd call it Old Bessie. Well, this old patriot called his Hot Lips. I'm, I'm not, you, there is, this is historically stuff. And he pulled up his musket and he saw that one British dragoon waving that sword, giving commands. And he said to his musket, rifle he said let's see what hot lips can do and that colonel was right man's remains are still on king's mountain north carolina shot and killed him 
pet names aren't the same thing as biblical love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, that's not love. Let me give you another one. Read down a little bit more. If you will, look in verse number two. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. Focus in on that, though I have all knowledge. Fellow went one day and he and his fiance got married. At the end of the wedding, there's the processional, and the new groom saw his dad and his dad, they shook hands and hung. His dad had a package. He said, son, now that you're married and all, I felt that you needed some advice from your marriage. And he said, and I, you know, I've been married 30 years. And he said, and in this package I have is a book and it's full of everything I know about women. And I think that perhaps it will be a help to you. And so the boy was overwhelmed and he took the package and of course they went about the reception. They go home, the fellow gets home and They've opened many of the gifts that people brought to him at the reception and such. And, and the wife has gone, gone up to bed, you know, and, and there sends the, the groom. And he opened that book and he coveted this time. He's going to read it. You know, it's a real thick one. And lo and behold, he opened it and the first several pages were blank. And he looked at the last several pages and they were blank and looked. And this was a 500-page book with nothing but blank pages. Everything his dad learned about women. What I'm saying by... Great knowledge is not the same thing as love. You can know a lot of things about somebody that mean you love them. You can know what size their neck is, how tall they are, what they like, what they dislike, what their medical diagnosis is, what prescriptions they're on, what vitamins and supplements they take, how big their foot is when their last surgeries. Well, you can know all that. That doesn't mean love. The federal government knows all that about you. Anyway, it doesn't mean they love you. Keep reading. Notice verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Focusing on the giving there. I bestow all my goods. I give my body to be burned. I would submit to you that kind actions and even great sacrifices are not the same thing as love. Granted, it can be a token and a picture of I heard a fellow recently, he talked about being on a podcast, said he, said he, he, he was a self-made man. He's kind of full of himself, and he married a woman. She was a self-made woman, and they had a series of children. And he said early in life, he's an actor in, in Hollywood. He said early in life, I decided that we're going to have everything that our parents uh, didn't give us, and we're going to give it to our children. And he said, and I, I, we were going to really strive, and we felt that though with great enough success and gift and such and so forth, our children could really amount to something. There'd be harmony and peace. And he said, we combined our incomes and went out and built a great big house. He said, we opened doors for our children so that at a young age, they could all have anything they wanted for. And he said, you know what I learned after about three years? You can't buy happiness. But I tried to. Things don't equal love. Why, there's many a lady that's bejeweled by a fella that's her husband. And that's just peace offerings. Not genuine love. Draw your eyes to verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly. 
seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Let me say this. Biblical love, really two things here. Biblical love is not the same thing as a need and a desire. In fact, sometimes you'll hear some, some person and they'll talk about how bad they need their spouse. I need my wife. I need my wife. I want my wife here. I want my husband here. Need and desire are not the same thing as biblical love. Sometimes one might express their love by stating how much they need someone, how much they can't live without someone, and what they do or would do if they lost that person. That's not the same thing as biblical love. Biblical love does not behave itself unseemly. You continue in that thought. I might would say that illicit action is not love. Note verse number five. That last phrase. Thinketh no evil. Oh, there's many an individual that's engaged in illicit activity where they threw around the word love you. Well, that's not biblical love. Look down at verse number seven. It beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. I would submit to you that biblical love is not the same thing as feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions come and go. They're often the basis of superficial and unrealistic infatuation. By themselves, feelings are not an indicator of God's love. We know that. We might would say sometimes that we don't feel that God loves us. But we know theologically that it's true that God always loves His children. Biblical love hopeth all things, endureth all things. Feelings and emotions are not love. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel chapter 13 as a fellow Amnon and he had a half-sister, and her name was Tamar, and he loved her. He needed her. He was attracted to her. Attraction's not love either. At the end of it, he got counsel from his friend to trick her and rape her. And at the end of all of that, Scripture says, and the hate wherewith Amnon hated Tamar was greater than the love wherewith he loved her. Listen, activity is not the same thing as love. I'll throw this out for free, but you listen a lot to folks and they talk about love and they use, it's, it's almost like they're on the edge of a swimming pool. They fall into love and fall out of love. As though they fell into a swimming pool. I don't know how you fall out of a swimming pool, but weirder things can happen. They fell in. They fell out. And they'll come seeking help and say, I just just don't love her. She doesn't love me anymore. And somebody might ask them, well, did you ever love? Yes, there was one time where we just so loved each other. You might would say, well, what was that like? It was a time I needed her. We used to call each other very cutesy-wootsy names. We had great attraction one with another. I knew things about her. We communicated. It was in those times I'd do anything. 
what they're describing is everything but biblical love. The fact is, in order to understand biblical love, we've got to recognize the parallel, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, that is present. He, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, he is to love his wife, the husband, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Biblical love is seen and understood and therefore obeyed by examining God's love for his believers. In 1 John chapter 4, turn over to 1 John chapter 4. Note this, verse 19. We can talk about how many of you love God. And we say, oh, I love God. Why do you love God? There's only one real reason you love God. It's found in verse number 19. We love Him because He first loved us. You did not wake up one day and say, oh, I have an affinity for God. No, 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 you were his enemy. You are a breacher of holiness, a sinner. In Romans 5, he described you as ungodly. But in Romans 5, 8, he commended his love toward you. And then while you, each of us, were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And he has given you the opportunity to have a free gift that cost you nothing, cost him everything, and benefits you greatly. In fact, in a great sense, that's what love is. Let me give you some descriptions of Christ's love. And I'll move quickly through this. 1 John chapter 4, you're there. Look at verse number 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And where propitiation, it refers to the mercy seek. It's the payment. It's the reconciliation. It's that thing which pleases God the Father. He paid our sin debt. I know the next verse. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. Then all the way down in verse number 19, we love Him because He first loved us. With no biblical love, focus on these things. Biblical love isn't feelings, it's not an activity, it's not knowledge. It's none of those things, but biblical love is always enacted by someone. And here, biblical love is enacted by God. Biblical love is never something that is earned. If biblical love can be earned, you and I are in sad states. Because that would have mean that I did something in which to endear myself to God's holiness and His righteousness. Only the opposite of that is true. I did everything to appeal to His judgment upon me. God enacted love. I did not earn it. Oh, how many, how many men might say of that? I just don't love her anymore. Why? Because she. So around the line you interpreted love in a 
sensual, fleshly, worldly sense, not in a biblical sense. A biblical sense has nothing to do with earning love. Biblical love is enacting. It's a commitment of the mind and of the heart and of the will. It is a choice that is made, not a feeling that is felt. God commended. He enacted. He made a divine, holy choice in times past regarding you and I. He chose to love you. Biblical love is always a choice. Think of the gospel. I don't understand this. But God would have me love my enemies. I'm always amazed at that. Someone would say, regarding, well, I don't love him, I don't love her anymore. Because in the scriptures, Titus chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, both are commanded to love, husband and wife commanded to love one another. And sadly, sometimes, and God's people are commanded to love one another. But sadly, sometimes it's easier for us to love the heathen than to love each other. You know what that is? In all caps, that's S-A-D. That is sad. That is pathetic. I think of maybe Proverbs chapter 7. Old fellow's talking to his son. He said, why wilt thou embrace the love of a strange woman? Oh, what a terrible travesty. Biblical love is always enacted. I'll give you a second thing about love biblically. Biblically love is always enunciated. It's important. I love her. But I don't really need to tell her. Then you don't really love her. Says who? Says God. God didn't just say to you, I've committed my love towards you, and that while you're a sinner, I've died for you. Now, shut up and go about your life. You ought to know enough that I love you. Now, his replete in the expression of his love to you and I. Jeremiah who was a pre-exilic prophet, meaning he was a prophet in the land of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, before all the judgment of God is about to be poured out upon them, as it were, and they're to carry into captivity all of this. In Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord said, I have loved thee, Israel, Jerusalem, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee. It's always amazing. Well, I love the brethren, but I don't need to tell them that. I love my children, but I don't need to tell them that. I love my wife. I love my husband. We don't really need to say, you need to say, what? That's the way God's love. He commands it. You know, in a broader picture, when's the last time you told another child of God you loved him? I mean in all purity. I promise you, sometimes the world has better manners without the imperatives of scriptures than some believers do. It's enunciated. The third thing about the love of Christ is this, it's enduring. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talks about this, charity never fails. Listen to this. Listen to this. Now abideth faith, hope, charity. Faith, the expression of belief, in the truest portions of scriptures, faith. 
The Lord said of faith, if you have great faith, you can move mountains. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope, that's your expectation of the promises of God. And charity, that's the love of God that dwells within you and that ought to permeate every aspect of my life. And Paul said, now, the greatest of these is, oh, well, want to be doctrinally right. Yes, we do. But I don't want to lose the love of God. Go ask the Ephesian church about that. Doctrinally sound, stood, had hope in the promises of God. But do you remember the condemnation against them? They had left that first love. Biblical love is enduring. It's enduring. Number four, biblical love is evidenced. It is evidenced. What do you mean? It's demonstrated. It's demonstrated. Theologically, I think about the demonstration of Calvary. The old saying, you know how much the Lord loves you? Hands spread wide, enough to die for. The love of Christ was demonstrated. So you and I, if we would love our husbands, and if the wives would, uh, to, uh, if we would love our wives, and, and, and if the spouse, the wife, would love her husband, it should be demonstrated. Acts of kindness. There's evidence of that love. Number five, the biblical love is extolled in sacrifices. In John chapter 10, the good shepherd giveth his life for a sheep. We live in such a self-centered world. In fact, let me read you a passage just considering that over in 2 Timothy. Listen, chapter 3. This is what he says here. The last days perilous time shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. We live in a world that's all about self. Biblical love is extolled in sacrifices. Biblical love is extraordinary. It's extraordinary in that it's not based on performance. I think of the 103rd Psalm, particularly verses 8, 9, 10. The Lord knoweth our frame, that we are but dust. Talks about as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed transgression from us. And then he begins to speak about his loving kindness. You know, when we look at the love of God and we compare it to the imperative command here in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to husbands love your wives, that love ought to be extraordinary. It's not based on performance. It does not say husbands love your wife as long as they submit unto their husband. Now I realize that's treading on deep water. It's not conditional. By the way, neither is God's love for you. It's not conditional, is it? Does God still love you when you're disobedient to Him? Some time ago I was talking to someone and we're talking in this general theme of marriage. 
And I asked the question, I said, well, what are you going to do if your dear wife doesn't do what you want her to do? What are you going to do? There's no answer to that question. What are you going to do when you say, honey, I really don't want you to do that? And she says, do you have a hammer? And you say, yes, I have a hammer. Go pound sand. What are you going to do? Now, if my child, if I tell my child, child, because that's what I call mine, child, go pick up your room. My little child comes to me and says, Daddy, you got a hammer? We're going to have a whole different conversation. What happens when your wife says no? Well, she's wrong. Maybe. Go present that as the argument. Maybe she is wrong. You're forced with two choices. You're going to love her or you're going to hate her. And failure to love is going to embrace acidic bitterness towards her. By the way, seems like there ought to be a Bible verse somewhere around 1 Peter chapter 3 and be not bitter against them. Biblical love is extraordinary. Biblical love is earnest. It's genuine. In a sense, guaranteed. Listen, listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich, I'm in verse 4, rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. He's raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The psalmist pens in the 112th Psalm, the fourth verse, reference to God that he is full of compassion. He is rich in mercy. Great love wherewith he loved us. It's earnest. It's enduring. It's evidence. It's extolled. It's extraordinary. Now when you compare that to the love wherewith someone might say, I love my car. It isn't the same thing, isn't it? In fact, I would submit to you that upon real engagement to the etymology in which they used love to describe inanimate objects, no succinct, sound-minded person would truly say they love their pet in the same way they would love their wife. None of them really would say, yes, I love hunting more than I love my wife. That's the expression of responsibility. Biblical love is a continual act of commitment of the will toward another individual. The reality is, 
to every child of God, they have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and therefore there is no other saved person that you and I can legitimately proclaim we can't love. That's what that means. To say that there's a saved individual that I cannot love, remove the marital thoughts for a moment. To say that there is another believer that I cannot love is to say that God's power in me is inferior to my need. Which is not in keeping in the Word of God. Too often really, really is, is we don't want to fight our flesh over this. And so therefore when a personality comes across our way, or someone's likes or dislikes comes our way, or something somebody said comes our way, or how they responded comes our way, and that irritant comes, rather than dealing with it with a godly mindset, we allow the human nature to take over, and bitterness begins to happen in life, and it roots and manifests itself with ever evil fruit. To a greater level, that's exactly what happens in many marriages. Husbands, love your wife. But, 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 I, 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 it's a commitment of the will empowered by the Spirit of God. I think really a lot of premarital counseling among Christians deals with the bedroom. And it really ought to deal with the war room, to be honest with you. Because you're going to face difficulties there. Decisions, conflict, competitive ideas. Sometimes you're going to watch each other make mistakes. And you're going to have to know how to deal with your tongue. Whether it's going to be sharp as a two-edged sword or as precise as a surgical scalpel. Oh, how great the responsibility of the husband's ministry is to love his wife. How necessary for him to immerse himself in the knowledge of God. Oh, how important it is to remember that God's love is selfless and enduring. That it is his commitment of his own will to care and benefit us. In this same fashion, a godly husband is to love in the biblical sense, his own life. Let's stand around here. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.